All right. All right. Okay. So I think listeners of Geopolitics and Geopolitics and Empire would recognize John Rubino. Uh, you've been with us a number of times. Uh, you're founder of dollarcollapse.com. Uh, you're author and co-author of a number of great books, which uh, people should check out. And so we were just talking about the 2008 global financial crisis. And I, I thought, you know, you, you wrote a really interesting piece recently called that this is the least important uh, election of our lifetimes. And I think it's, it's tied to your thesis, the, the thesis you've had for the past couple years, um, you know, where you look at the big picture, which is that the U.S. and many or most countries around the world are insolvent and that we're heading for a crash. Uh, and so, you know, maybe you could tell us why this is the least important uh, election, which I think has to do with the dollar uh, collapse. Yeah, well, the, the U.S. election is in, in large part about personalities. You know, Trump just rubs 48 percent of the population the wrong way. And the people who are, you know, triggered by Trump and acting out are rubbing a big part of the population otherwise the wrong way also. You know, so you've got people hating each other in the U.S. now. We've become very tribal. And, um, and, and you know, it's easy when you're living in this little tribe and only hearing the opinions of other people who agree with you to dehumanize people who disagree with you. And that's, that's where we are right now. You know, we've got people watching Fox News and people watching MSNBC and getting completely different worldviews from it. And because of that, this election feels existential. You know, we've got people, gun sales are through the roof in the U.S. right now. And, and we've got civil unrest and, uh, you know, and lots of things going on besides the coronavirus lockdown. So, you know, as if we didn't already have enough to worry about, we've got political turmoil. Um, so to a lot of people, this election feels like the most important election of our lifetimes and everything. And, and you know, in terms of policy, it's really not. In terms of personalities, yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh, <clears throat> it's a very different country, depending on who's in charge, but only in terms of tone, not in terms of policy. You know, if the um, the Republicans get a conservative Supreme Court, that that's marginally important for a couple of social issues, and maybe a couple of corporate versus non-corporate related um, cases that come to the Supreme Court. But it's not that big of a deal, and it also won't be that big of a deal in terms of um, immigration or drug policy, or foreign policy, you know, most of, um, and certainly not in financial policy, you know, most of what we've been doing under Trump is similar to what we were doing under President Obama. And it will be similar to what happens under President Biden if he comes into office. You know, we're still going to um, run trillion dollar plus deficits. Um, we're still going to bail out everybody in sight next year. You know, we really don't have a choice because of the pandemic. Um, to either bail people out or not bail people out. You know, if we don't bail out the airlines and the cruise lines and the hotel chains and the restaurants and the state and local governments, um, those entities will go bankrupt one way or another. You know, states can't legally go bankrupt, but they will default on a lot of their, their obligations. Um, and that will send the economy into a Great Depression 2.0, and nobody who's in charge wants to have that happen on their watch. So we will see massive bailouts and massive money printing and huge deficits, no matter who's in charge. 
Um, so I really don't think it matters all that much other than, you know, entertainment value, who's in charge next year. You know, Trump is more fun than Biden because uh, he's basically a stand up comedian who somehow got elected president, you know, and he's got this big audience and he's having fun with it. But uh, um there isn't a lot of substantive stuff that he's accomplished. I mean, cutting corporate taxes is the easiest thing in the world. You know, cutting taxes is simple. It's like raising spending for um, for the Democrats. You know, it's something that everybody wants you to do so you can go ahead and do it with no real political downside. Um, and that's largely all that Trump got done in his first four years. So maybe, you know, his next four years will be somewhat more productive in the direction of, uh, you know, the wall or... Um, um, immigration reform in general, or, you know, I, I and I he hesitant, to, I'm hesitant to think we will be free of any kind of foreign entanglements under Trump, you know, he'll try to pull us out of some wars, but I don't think he'll succeed. So, um, and meanwhile, we'll be going broke at an accelerating rate, either way. So yeah, I don't think this is that important uh, an election. But um, in terms of policy going forward, but one thing it could be important for is the civil unrest that comes if this thing is a contested election. You know, if uh, if tonight doesn't settle it and we've got all these mail in ballots and and uh, and and other kinds of things, you know, voting machines that are hacked and polling places that are closed and have to have different hours. You know, if all this stuff's going on and the lawyers for both sides are just feasting out there on, on all of these questions. And somebody ends up getting declared the winner. The guys who lose are gonna think they got cheated. And since we're already, um, you know, in the middle of a episode of civil unrest here in the US, uh, that could really exacerbate that side of the problem. You know, we could see some very serious riots as one side or the other decides they've been cheated and that they're not going to put up with it and they hit the streets. And that scares me. And I guess you could call that a consequence of this election, but uh, I think it's more a consequence of just our past mismanagement. We have angered the average American to such an extent that they're ready to go. You know, they're gearing up for civil war here. Right. Um, you can't even buy a gun because they've all been bought out there. I mean, we, we are just the most heavily armed democracy that's ever been. I have a question a on the people oh go ahead yeah yeah on on the point of view mentioning state and municipal def defaults there's a there's a double question here uh, has a state united states state defaulted before as in not being bailed out but actually going through a default is there precedent and the other question is if a country defaults well countries can't default i mean you can't sell the country <laughs> to uh, to whoever owns uh, gets gets money but if a country defaults we have a mechanism called the Club of Paris, a mechanism since 1956. So would that Club of Paris mechanism apply to states defaulting and have, is that president of a state defaulting? Well, countries do default all the time and they just work it out. You know, it, it's, it's something that, uh, that happens via their currency markets or a big, you know, a group of banks get together and help the country get past their default. So that happens. States in the U.S. are trickier because technically they can't default legally. You know, they don't have a legal mechanism like Chapter 11 um, it, with companies. They don't have that kind of thing. But if they can't pay their bills, they can't pay their bills. You know, they're, they're going to have to um, default on some of their obligations. And it's hard to imagine an international solution to this. 
because this is a U.S. problem. And, and, you know, the U.S. government has an unlimited printing press. They can bail out the states um, by just creating another $3 trillion and handing it to California and New York and Kentucky and Illinois and Connecticut and New Jersey um, and wiping out the debts of those states. They could totally do it. So there's no reason for the international community to get involved. But the problem with that is that there's a limit to how much a country can borrow and still have a functioning currency. Uh, and, and the question for the U.S. is, where is that limit? Like, where's the brick wall that we hit in terms of taking on new debt and creating new currency um, that stops us cold and prevents us from being able to continue to live beyond our means? And nobody knows where that is because we have the world's reserve currency, which means a lot of people around the world still think dollars are valuable and still will take dollars. If we print them or electronically create them, they'll give us real stuff for those dollars. Um, but there's a limit to that. And bailing out the states and the cities and the airlines and all those other country or companies I just um, mentioned would probably tax our ability to continue to create new currency. And then once the value of uh, a major currency starts to fall, then its country loses the main tool it has for manipulating markets. And so that's that's what I worry about for us, that we're we're heading into a time when um, the financial system just doesn't work anymore because it's too deeply indebted, it's too over leveraged. And then we have nothing left. You know, we've got immense debts that we can't pay. And um, we've got obligations around the world. You know, we've got a military empire that costs us a trillion dollars a year and a cradle to grave entitlement system that costs about that too. So, you know, take, those, take away our ability to borrow money to fund those things. There's no telling what happens. So um, that's what I see in our future. And the coronavirus lockdown just accelerated this process by causing us to borrow insane amounts of money this year and forcing us to borrow just that much more next year uh, and bringing the point at which we can't do that anymore closer. So, it, you know, it may be a, a 2021 problem or it may be a few years further down the road, but sooner or later, we're, we're going to get there. And we're going to have, um, you know, an insoluble financial problem. And that's, that's when things get really interesting, because what do you do if you have a problem you can't solve? And speaking of <clears throat> civil uh, unrest, I was listening to an interview you gave recently talking about uh, your wife, who's not a prepper. But she's like, uh, yeah, we got to get some guns. <laughs> she's and, a prepper so, now, yeah. And, and the airlines as well. I was, I'm here in Mexico, and I, I'm going to need to do some flying pretty soon. And I was reading today, one of the airlines uh, canceled all their flights because they hadn't paid for the fuel. Um, they didn't have money to pay for, I guess, for the fuel. So, yeah. Well, you, almost any kind of a transportation or hospitality industry is operating at really low occupancy rates now. And in the airline, case the airlines, there aren't enough seats being filled with paying customers to pay for the planes and for the pilots and for the flight attendants and food and all the other stuff that it costs that you have to buy to run an airline. So, yeah, um, they will run out of money if the lockdown doesn't end immediately or they don't get some huge bailout from their government. Uh, and so that's what next year is going to be all about. We're going to be trying to figure out, well, OK, do we just do this, adopt the Sweden model and get rid of the lockdown and go back to economic normality in order to save the economy? 
or do we stay locked down to prevent the spread of this disease at the cost of some gigantic increase in debt and potentially a huge financial crisis out there? So yeah, what, what you saw with the airlines is going to be replicated around the world a thousand times, you know, with all these other hotel chains and restaurants and retail stores, you know, it's all going to happen to those guys in the same way. And who knows how we fix it? I don't know that there is a fix for it. And as you said, you know, we've kind of reached the end of the road. You know, Francis Fukuyama said in the, in the 90s that that was the end of the hi end of history. And I think I think now we're approaching the real true end uh, of history in a sense. And what do you see kind of beyond the pale? Because uh, there are various solutions being uh, proposed. These all of the world's uh, nations are proposing these digital currencies. And we can see that next year, um, there were some plans that I saw that by November of 2021, a lot of countries are going to start going live with these digital systems and, and currencies. Christine Lagarde recently tweeted about, you know, going uh, online with the euro, digital euro. Uh, then we have all this talk about IMF, digital special drawing rights, uh, gold. Um, what's your kind of favorite theory of what might most likely happen when the system crashes? Well, the, the thing to understand with digital currencies is that they're, they're still currencies if they're run by a nation and they're not based on anything. You know, if they're, if they're just a fiat currency, but they, um, they operate on the blockchain instead of via Visa and MasterCard and Bank of America, no difference. You know, the government can still create that currency in infinite quantities and spend it as it sees fit. And because of that, its value is inevitably going to plunge. You know, what, what a, um, a blockchain-based digital currency is, is a better um, transaction mechanism, we think. You know, we'll see if that turns out to be true. But it looks like a, just a faster way to move money around. But it doesn't solve the problem of fiat currency, which is that we've basically um, taken away the link between our money and something real that limits the increase in supply of our money. Um, and, you know, it'll be the same way if we have a digital dollar and a digital euro and a dig digital yen, um, governments will still be creating them like crazy. And so their value will still be trending down, just maybe in a more efficient way transactionally as well. Uh, so we still have to have some kind of a monetary reset out there where we, we admit that the experiment with fiat currencies didn't work. And we go to something else. Um, you know, there are people who say that Bitcoin is the solution because it is a currency with a limited supply. And we could go to Bitcoin um, as our reserve currency and base our other currencies on Bitcoin. But, I, you know, something that lives online, you know, in, in cyberspace is hackable somehow, some way. So that worries me about um, even a, um, a cryptocurrency with um, an algorithmically limited supply can still be messed with by the NSA or the CIA or the Russian mafia or China's, you know, the army branch in China that, that uh, does hacking. Uh, so it's not that secure. But that same argument um, would apply also to central bank digital currencies. I mean, that's absolutely. Yeah. yeah central bank currencies are not secure either because they, you know, your bank account can be hacked. Your brokerage account can be hacked. Um, and the governments themselves can ruin those currencies by over by creating too many of them. So um, the, the currencies that we have now are fatally flawed. 
And the question is, what do we go to next? And, um, you know, it seems like the simplest solution is to go back to what worked for 200 years, which is a gold gold standard, where we um, we link, or actually we just redefine our currencies as a given weight of gold. I know? can imagine, as seen by central bankers and Christine Lagarde and, and those people, there is a flaw to the current fiat system, and that flaw, as seen from their perspective, so that's my disclaimer, that flaw might be that there's cash, <laughs> there's tangible <laughs> money that you can get it from the money machine. So in, in the way I look at it, central bank digital currencies is like pretty much the same experience as my, as my current bank account, only without the cash. Is that a, am I right there to assume yes. that, that cash will be gone? It's, it's like killing the lifeboat. Yeah, well, um, they would love to get rid of cash for a variety of reasons. One is it's, uh, you know, a legitimate reason is that it's a pain in the butt to run a cash-based system because you've got to keep printing this paper and it wears out and you've got to keep track of it. And and uh, it's a disease vector we just found out lately here. But um, the other reason they want to get rid of it is because it's the last vestige of financial privacy. You, uh, you know, you guys and I can contract with cash and nobody has to know about it. Uh, but that's the only way that we can do it privately. If uh, if we use credit cards or bank checks or anything like that, there's a record of it, which the, the NSA in the U.S. is vacuuming up every second of every hour of every day and keeping track of to use against you at some point if you cross the government in any other way, in, in any way. So um, we will do away with cash at some point because governments really want to do that. And it's just way more convenient to use electronic money. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't use all that much cash, um, even though I like the idea that it, it exists. But someday it won't exist anymore. Um, and that just um, that opens the door to even more sharply negative interest rates, for instance. Because one of the problems with negative interest rates is that people who have money in the bank will will see their bank accounts get smaller year after year after year as those negative interest rates bite. So they, they will take their money out and just get cash and then hide that cash somewhere. And that interferes with the functioning of the financial system from the point of view of central banks. It, it means they can't manipulate markets as easily as they, they could if there was no cash. So yeah, they'll, they'll do their best to get rid of cash, but that won't save us. I mean, that just accelerates the process <laughs> of um, of um, yeah. all the big countries going broke at varying rates until we all go broke instantly. I get, um, so I get listeners asking me questions like, uh, what can we do? I've asked you multiple times, uh, as well as many of my guests, you know, when we talk about economics, what can the average uh Joe, do I'm reminded of Teddy Roosevelt's quote, you know, do what you can with what you've got, uh, where you are. So, uh, I mean, what are just some, and, and people can go read your books. I mean, they're excellent. You co-authored one with James Turk, uh, of goldmoney.com. But I mean, what are some basics now in the situation where, where we're in at the end of 2020, some fundamental things that people can do to prepare for an un uncertain well, future? The, the first thing is to recognize that your vote doesn't matter in terms of the financial crisis that's coming. I mean, you, you can vote for lots of things and change the world at the margins right now, but you can't stop this gigantic financial crisis because, you know, nobody that you can elect is going to do anything to stop it. You know, everybody's invested in the current system. Um, so what you have to do is protect yourself 
and your family um, because that's all that's left. So, you know, it, the, the concept of prepper has some negative connotations, but conceptually, I think it's what people should be looking at right now. We should be preparing for a time when there's a lot of financial turmoil and possibly civil unrest and possibly, uh, you know, weird government policies being implemented because they're panicking in, in the throes of a financial slash political crisis and try to structure your life so that you are immune to as much of that stuff as possible. And, you know, here in the US right now, the hottest part of the real estate market is rural land. Everybody's trying to buy a homestead because they want to be able to grow their own food um, so they don't have to depend on global food supply chains, which are all of a sudden not that stable, right? Not that reliable. Um, and gun sales are through the roof, um, which implies that people are kind of get, getting ready for either a civil war or some kind of a real period of uncertainty in which they can't necessarily count on the police to save them from trouble. Um, you know, those are, are buying an arsenal or buying a farm are fairly extreme responses to this. I like the idea of both of them, personally. And I can totally see how someone would want to do that. But um, the financial fix is easier. You know, just go out and buy a bunch of gold and silver on the assumption that those are the kinds of old forms of money that we have used for 3,000 years, and they've always held their value. So they will more than likely hold their value again when we screw up our currencies yet another time. Uh, you know, you can go all the way back to the Roman Empire and before, and there were hyperinflations, and there were there was civil unrest, there were revolutions, there were natural disasters. Gold and silver stayed valuable through all of it for 3,000 years. Um, so it will again. And that's how you insulate your finances from... The, the kind of, you know, hyperinflation-ish thing that might come if we continue to borrow all this money and create all this new currency, and it leads to a, an accelerating decline in the value of our, our monies. Um, and that's relatively simple and uncontroversial. You know, you just go buy a bunch of silver coins, put them in a very safe place, maybe um, shift out of your bank stocks and your Google and your, uh, your Amazon stock and buy some gold mining stocks. And you're, to an extent, protected financially from what's coming because those things that you're buying will tend to go up um, while your bank stocks and while your government bonds and things like that are falling in price along with the currency. So um, you can do that without having to make any kind of an ideological statement. So, have Although, you, you know, I, I get that um, gold bugs are also part of the, you know, in a lot of people's minds, part of the uh, the prepper community. And are maybe seen as survivalists also and everything. But it's a, it's a relatively easy, simple thing to do have, that does help prepare you for what's coming. Have you and your wife picked up farming? That will be my last question. <laughs> or, <laughs> or maybe not just yet. Uh, you know, my, my wife is serious about this. So I'm, I'm kind of being pulled along into, you know, from being a city boy gold bug into being a uh, gentleman farmer. So we'll see. In a few years, that, that okay. might be my, my new persona. Oh. All right. All right, I think I think uh, our next guest is here, Jim. No, oh, he he dropped out. Uh, he was here in the waiting room, and now he's disconnected. Maybe I'm not sure, John, if you're familiar with Jim Jatras, the former U.S. diplomat. Can you text him that he should come back in the room? No, but that sounds interesting. 
I think I, um, uh, what you said that uh, it won't matter really who wins and that the end game is uh, the same. And I think a lot of our guests are feeling the same way, you know, that it, there won't be, it won't matter. Um, uh, I, but m maybe some people have brought up the, the idea that a Biden win would accelerate uh, the crash versus Trump maybe buying us a little more time. What do you think about that? Um, I, well, on balance, the Democrats will spend more money than the Republicans. But, you know, before the pandemic hit, we had a Republican government running trillion dollar deficits. So it's not like the Republicans are still the, the party of small government. They, they're running trillion dollar deficits just like the Democrats. So, um, you know, there might be a, a slight difference in how much money is spent and how fast the, the currency is devalued, but not a big one. You know, it's coming either way. All right. Well, John, John Rubino of dollarcollapse.com. Be sure to sign, sign up to his uh, newsletter. It's, it's excellent. And thanks for being with us. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care.